Well, I've been going through a, a series of sermons on the first letter of Timothy, and uh, so last week in the afternoon, uh, we went through 1 Timothy chapter 3, so I'd like to continue now when we go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. So in your Bibles, uh, if you have your Bibles there with you, you'll find this uh, towards the end of your Bibles. Uh, this, is, this is the letter of, of Paul, uh, the apostle who went out uh, preaching the gospel and, and, and planting churches uh, through much of uh, uh, the, the Roman world and, and the area which is called Asia Minor, uh, through, through sections of Turkey, uh, and then also through the Mediterranean Sea, and then all the way up into Rome, uh, which is where he ended up as well. well. Paul's writing to Timothy, and Timothy has been sent by Paul to one of the churches which he had planted, or he had uh, been involved in with the establishment of, and that is in a city called Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And uh, things are not... There are things which are going well, but there are also things which are not going so well in Ephesus. This is why Timothy is there, and is called to... Uh, uh, to, to, call, to really encourage the church to, to be really focused once more on the, on the purity of the gospel and of the gospel message. And, uh, uh, and, and then in this also we'll find here uh, the need then uh, in chapter 4 uh, for true gospel teaching. And then what we're also going to learn here is how um, Timothy himself was also to be trained in this and then also to obviously uh, train others in it as well. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insecurity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that, you've, that you have, which has been given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So far, the reading from God's Word. Uh, before we hear the preaching on this, we'll just sing together from hymn 82, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. 
him to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hymn 82, stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. So if you're new here to uh, Melville Church uh, this morning and you have your book of praise, of course, it is on the screen as well. But if you have your hymn book, you'll find that the first uh, 150 uh, songs are, uh, are psalms, and this indeed comes from the Bible. And after that, you'll have the hymn section in a book of praise. And so you'll have this in hymn 82. Uh, this is uh, after the psalms, and you'll find that on page 483. Well, let's sing this together.
Please be seated. So it's my intention to uh, preach uh, through uh, what we've just read in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We won't read it again, but if uh, you do have your, your Bibles open still, uh, it would be helpful to, to have 1 Timothy 4 quite close to you. Um, we'll be bouncing around a little bit in this text, but at the same time I hope to get through uh, most of the, the verses which are here. Well, brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the uh, Commonwealth Games in Birmingham in, in England, they have recently wrapped up, and as pretty much expected, I guess, Australia did quite well. It was not our biggest medal hall tally ever, uh, but we got more gold and we got more medals than every other country, including England, and that's pretty much what seems to count. And as we've grown to expect, we especially did well with swimming in the pool. Now we can get a little bit nonchalant about these gold medals and I dare say that most if not all of you who followed the Commonwealth Games, uh, you've probably forgotten already the exact number of, certainly forgotten who exactly won all these golds, gold medals, and then also you may also have forgotten the exact number of gold medals and indeed the total medal tally. Uh, for the record, it was uh, 67 golds and uh, 178 medals in total. So if you've forgotten some of those, it's not surprising. But imagine if it was you. Imagine if you were the one there on the podium, the top podium, hopefully with your support team, your family, your friends there around you, to enjoy this moment of glory. How would you feel? I know how I'd feel if I was there. I'd be proud of my achievement. I think I'd be really thankful that I made it. And I think I'd be just a little bit overwhelmed. You see, being up there on this podium, right there with a the gold in my hand, means that the thing that I've worked for and the thing that I've strived for, and the thing that I've been living for, has paid off. I've made it, and I won. And here I am on top of the podium, feeling the adulation of the world as I hold up my medal, and it's gold for Australia, and it's gold for me. And do you know why I'd feel that way? Because of what it takes to win a gold medal. Let's take our swimmers, for example. They didn't just wake up one morning and say, oh, I think I might swim the Olympics this year or the Commonwealth Games. These, these swimmers, for years, they've been training in the pool six days a week, two times every day. And because the day is too short for them, they'd very often start so early in the morning, they'd get up and start swimming sometimes at 4 a.m. in the morning so they can get the two swims in. Because between the swimming, they need both to recuperate from that swimming and to do other exercises. Uh, there's the training, there's the weights, there's the running, there's the squats, there's the lunges, there's the pilates. But it's not just this. If you're going to be swimming the, in the Commonwealth Games, the Olympics, you have to think about your diet as well. And you need to pay attention to it. Uh, swimmers, they're encouraged to, to, eat, to eat little, but more often. Uh, four to seven, or not little, but more often, four to seven times a, a day often. Uh, but they really need to look, work on getting the right carbohydrates, 
the right amount and the right type of protein. And they also need to avoid those foods and those drinks that could slow them down. And with so much focus, therefore, on both diet and training, swimming at the Commonwealth Games, it's not just an event. Just to get to these games has been their life. Now, although uh, sports have changed a lot as it's professionalized, especially over the last uh, number of years, and it's become more of an exact, exact science, especially when it comes to training and to diet, the sportsmen and women, they've, they've really been focusing on these things pretty much forever. And certainly, in the culture of the Apostle Paul's days, when he wrote this letter to Timothy uh, close to a couple of thousand years ago, in the Greek and the Roman cultures of Paul's day, the athletes, they would maintain a strict diet. They'd have a strict exercise regime. And they'd do their best at their sports so that they could win the crown, or sometimes a wreath. And the athletes were just as passionate and fixed on those things in those days as they are now. And indeed, so much so that, that the Apostle Paul, he uses this illustration of an athlete and he compares also the, the diet and exercise of physical sport to, to how we should be as Christians and the diet and the exercise in our life of godliness. Uh, we didn't read it from that, but 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, uh, Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. Uh, I'll just read that to you. He, he, writes to them and he wrote to them, he said, Do you not know that in a race that all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. And I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And with the same picture in mind, the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, train yourself toward godliness. Train yourself. Give it all you've got. Be trained into... In the words of faith and the good doctrine, this is verse 6, be trained to be godly in your life and your conduct. That's verse 12. And then the verse 15 and 16, he, he underlines the importance of all this when he says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress and keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so it's not just Timothy who needs to do this. I, as your, as your pastor, really need to be listening and doing these things as well. And so, should you, so must your elders. But really, and so should you. But as is the case with the athlete or the Commonwealth Games swimmer who exercises self-control over all things, for you and me as well, it takes the right diet and persistent training to grow in godliness. And that's going to be my theme then for this morning's sermon. It takes the right diet 
and persistent training to grow in godliness. Two points. First, the right diet. And second, persistent training. I've been on a diet myself this past week. Feel sorry for me. My eating habits, they haven't been the best lately, and I've had a bit of brain fog. My cholesterol's up. I've found that I need to sleep, nap too often. So I'm joining my family and going through a bit of a detox. And so, admittedly, last night I, um, I cheated just a little bit, but for the week, I've, I've had a week of no caffeine, no alcohol, no potato chips, no other processed foods, no crackers, no cheese, no gluten, no dairy. And instead, we've been tucking into lots and lots of fresh fruits and vegetables and brown rice and quinoa and limiting our fats and limiting our meat portions. Now, I knew that my eating and drinking habits were not too good, but I did not realize just how not too good they were until I stopped. And for the first few days of this week, I, I missed my coffee, my head ached, and I felt horrible. My body, it appears, had grown accustomed to an extent to my poor eating habits. And my sudden change to a, to a healthy eating, it's, it's been a bit of a shock to the system. I trust, however, when the month is over, I'll be better for it, and I'll be in the right place to reestablish a healthier diet. But it did get me thinking. It got me thinking about our spiritual diet. You see, with, with podcasts and books and blogs and websites at our fingertips, we can pick and choose. We've got a smorgasbord out there as to what you want to eat and, and what you want to consume when it comes to your spiritual diet. It's like never before. But what are we consuming? First of all, are we eating? Are we consuming? Or are we starving to death? But if we are, what are we actually gravitating towards and consuming? What are you reading? What do you listen to? And of course, there's many books and podcasts that are excellent for the soul. But other times, there are things which are not so good. It might not be entirely bad. It might not be heresy. But it might not be so good either. Certainly not if that's all we're going to get. And it's especially not good when the things we read or the things we listen to, when they nudge us or they even try to, to turn us away from the pure message of, of the gospel. And you see, this, is the, this was the situation in the church of Ephesus where Timothy was the pastor when Paul wrote this letter to them. Paul had already written about this, especially in chapter 1, but now he goes back to the problem of these false teachers. I'd like to read that again, chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, and these are the last days, and indeed that's the days between Pentecost, the, the coming down of the Holy Spirit, and the return of Jesus. The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God create, created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 
for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, as you read through this, and you read also about uh, listening to uh, deceitful spirits and teachings of demons and people whose, whose consciences are seared, uh, liars, and then also those rules and regulations of forbidding marriage and so forth, absence of foods in a wrong way. Uh, you realize this is more than just a little mistake, more than just a small error which is going on, more than just a wrong emphasis in one or even more aspects of worship. But may I suggest to you that also in the church of Ephesus, it would not have started that way. Uh, chapter 1 already, when we read from 1 Timothy 1, it, it indicates that it started out with certain persons desiring, it says, to be teachers of the law, but really not knowing what they're teaching. Not understanding it. And then making confident assertions about things which weren't really true. That's chapter 1 verse 7. And then it goes on to say, and then they ended up just moving off from the word of God, and started getting all excited about, about things which really were not the Bible at all. They were going about endless genealogies and myths. And, and going into what he called vain discussions. And this went on to such a point that by the time you get to 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 3, uh, Paul is speaking about a different doctrine. That is a different teaching, a different gospel. And one that does not accord with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ or the teaching that accords with godliness. Now, now this may or may not have been deliberate on the side of these false teachers, the ones peddling these false doctrines. But I think it's very doubtful that it was deliberate on the side of the, the Christians in Ephesus that they would begin to follow them and then turn their back from the true gospel. probably doubtful that they didn't sufficiently realize just how much their spiritual diet had changed. How much and how far they drifted from the truth and how this was affecting their spiritual life. But it was serious. This is why Paul uh, directs Timothy, chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths, but rather, verse 6, Instead, what they were to do, he was to be a, a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that he'd followed. And that good doctrine requires a good diet. Verse 13, what is he to do? Until I come, devote yourself to what? To the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, this is preaching, to teaching. And verse 15 and 16, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so Paul is saying, he says, you need to be zealous in your ministry. You need to be careful about what you're teaching, because... Not only does your own salvation depend on it, but also the salvation of the people you're preaching to, you're ministering to. Now, I just want to comment further about what Paul says here when he writes here in the end of verse 16. Uh, For so, by so doing, you save both yourself and your hearers. Uh, he doesn't mean here that Timothy himself is going to do that. Uh, we need to read this in the context of the rest of Scripture. 
Uh, we know that God saves and God alone saves us, not Timothy. And how are we saved? We're saved through the suffering and death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, John Calvin, uh, he wrote in this verse in his commentary, he wrote, uh, Our salvation is the gift of God since it comes from Him alone and is effected only by His power so that He alone is its author. All right? So salvation is from God. But then Calvin, he, con he, he continues and he says, But this does not exclude the ministry of men, nor does it deny that ministry may be the means of salvation. For it is on that ministry that, as Paul says elsewhere, the welfare of the church de depends. So what this means is that although our salvation comes by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, the manner through which our Lord works faith and repentance is through very much the ministry of the preaching, through the exhortation, through the teaching here in church. And so if the preacher preaches the wrong thing, or if he and the elders of the church really teach the wrong thing, what then would that mean, not just for themselves, but what would that mean for the church, for the community. And Timothy, therefore, he says, Timothy must be nourished, well-fed in the words of faith and the good doctrine. Timothy needs to have that good diet. He needs to eat the right food and he needs to drink the right drink. That is, he needs to be hungry for the truth and for the Word of God, and it needs to drink the pure milk of that Word of God. And that's why uh, Paul says in verse 6, he says to him, he says, keep a close watch on yourself. No, verse 16, sorry. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, and persist in this. Timothy had to be, for Timothy to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, he must be trained then in the words of faith and the good doctrine it followed. He had to study, he had to practice, put into practice what God's word says. He has to feed on the truth of the gospel for himself first before he can feed others. If he's not nourished, he can't nourish others. Because a preacher does not get up and simply say a few truths. A preacher doesn't come and simply stand in the front and give you some interesting information. A preacher's not here, I'm not here also just to spout my own ideas. But I'm called to preach the gospel. But you can't do that unless you know the gospel. And you can't do that unless you believe the gospel. And I can't do this unless I try to also to live out the gospel for myself. Now, I don't mean to say that the preacher is perfect, that he's got everything right, that is free from sin. That's certainly not true for myself. I know and I feel and I experience that daily and how I wish that my faith was stronger, that my knowledge was deeper, that my holiness was greater. Ministers as well as elders and deacons are, as, as the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, they're like jars of clay. And it's like the gospel's inside that. We are weak instruments in the hands of a mighty God. But what? We are called to confess what we are called to live, what we are called to teach, and what we are called to preach is indeed the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's what Paul says in verse 10. He says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, 
who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Or to say this more clearly, who is the Savior of all people, that is, of those who believe. We labor at it. We hold fast to the doctrine, to the true teaching of the gospel. We believe it. We live it. We reject those things which are against God's word. But in doing this, we hold on to, we are nourished, and we confess the truth that we have a Savior. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame, but will have everlasting life. You see, this is why right doctrine is so important. Because this doctrine, this teaching, is the salvation for everyone who believes. And that's why for us here in Melville Church, preaching and teaching and right teaching is so important to us. That's why we are very careful in determining just who's allowed to preach on Sundays, for example. That's why we, we want to see stronger Bible study groups. That's why we want to see more of us getting together, whether it's with one-on-one -on -one or whether that's with larger groups who want us to get in together to, to open God's Word and to read it and to study it. Uh, that's why we, we teach our, our catechism classes, our, our doctrine to, to our teenagers in the congregation. This is also why we teach newcomers also when they want to join Melville Church. And this is also a reason as to why we, we keep emphasizing the need for a consistent diet. For us to keep getting together every Sunday, every time we have the opportunity to. Yes, even twice a Sunday so that so we can receive a good and a steady diet of the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. And that's also why the, the spiritual diet that we have also during the rest of the week, Monday through the Saturday, it must be equally nutritious. It needs to be good for the soul. And I trust you will agree with me in this and join us in that commitment. But that brings me to my second point, and that is persistent training. Just as an athlete, such as a swimmer at the Commonwealth Games, uh, they need to have the right diet in order to play their best and to swim their best. So Timothy needed to be well fed with the Word of God so that before he could teach others. But it wasn't just right teaching that Timothy was concerned about. There was also what the Bible speaks about as persistent training. Uh, that's what it says in verse 16. I've got my things wrong again here. It says here, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. And the word train here in verse 7, it's an important one. You see, growth in godliness, it doesn't just happen. It's not simply a matter of praying that the Lord will make you more godly and then going on in life as if nothing has happened. But as you pray for godliness... You're also praying that the Holy Spirit will help you to work at being more godly more and more. In other words, being godly is that when you take this gospel message, when you take that which you're learning from the Bible, which you're hearing from the preaching, and when this becomes internalized, and when we begin to live out of this more and more. 
Now, the word train, or as the other Bible translators have it as exercise in 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, it refers then to physical exertion. It refers to bodily exercise. It, it actually comes from the same as our Greek word gymnasium. It's a Greek word, actually. It comes from the same word as we have for the word gymnasium. And it's, it's the word used to describe the physical training that athletes need in order to compete at the sport. And as such, it's rigorous and it's, it's hard work. To exercise yourself towards Godliness requires great ongoing dedication. It requires concentrated energy. And in our text, Paul is not simply telling Timothy to, to praise the Lord for Godliness and that this would be the end of the matter. No, he's, he's called to, to, to strive to be godly, to, to train himself for godliness. He's to strive for godliness in the same way that a sports person strives to excel at their sport and to, and to win the prize. And the rest of 1 Timothy 4, it, it gives a guidance to just how we are to train ourselves for godliness as, God, as the Lord requires. And I'd like to ask your direct attention then to, to verse 12. Uh, where Paul writes the following, verse 12, and I'll be going through this a bit. He writes here, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. And then I'd like you to see the example. To set them an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Now, now let's un unpack this for a moment. So we can have a better understanding of how godliness is to be seen in Timothy's life and therefore in all of our lives. First of all, this godliness is to be seen in his speech. It's to be seen in what you say and also in how you say it. Now, although your, your love for God calls you to defend the truth of the gospel, and Timothy must do this, and sometimes even strongly defend it, Timothy is also taught not to be quarrelsome. But instead... Uh, we'll speak the truth in love, with, with words seasoned with the grace of God. And also then, what you say, it needs to be saturated in prayer. Uh, Paul's already spoken about prayer in chapter 2. A prayer in which you'll plead with the Holy Spirit to, to guide you in all your thoughts and all your words. The second thing here in this verse, uh, verse 12, is he was to set the believers an example in conduct. And we are to do that too, to set the believers an example in our conduct and also in the way that we live. And the reason for this is because, because godliness is really, at the end of the day, living before God's face. Godliness is placing God at the center of every activity and each endeavor. Godliness is placing God at the center of your work, your play, your leisure time. The center of everything we do at church, the center of education for our children. It's the center of what we think, what we say, and what we do. Godliness, then, it comes from a God-centered and a gospel-centered life. You cannot have godliness outside of that. Uh, maybe you can be moral, maybe you can do good things, maybe you can be kind and so forth, but you're not being godly. Because godliness is living out of the gospel. And it is indeed when we understand then that we are living before God's face. And so contrast that for a moment to, to these false teachers that Paul is referring to in 1 Timothy. False teachers that are being taught in Ephesus. Uh, they were leading, that was leading, the false teaching was leading to wrong living. You see, the consequence of this false teaching beyond 
uh, are failing to, to recognize the clarity of the gospel. Uh, we learned about some of these things. It led to, to lying. Uh, it led to doing away with God-given roles for both men and women. It led to a, a lack of a, 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 a care for the, for the lost and for the rest of the world and, and for those who, who did not know the gospel and, and did not know the truth, who weren't focused and interested, led to people not being interested in, in evangelism. It led to people forbidding others in, in marriage, uh, forbidding the eating of certain foods. And so you can see then that this wrong teaching led to some pretty bad and massive consequences. But that's not to be the same for, for Timothy. And it's not to be the same for you and for me. If you are being trained in the words of faith, and if you're living in the truth of the gospel of salvation for a new life in Jesus Christ, that must be seen in your conduct, in the way that you live, in all these decisions you're going to make every day. And see, it's also important for us to think through this a little bit. It's about what does it mean then to live for God? Sometimes we're tempted to say, well, where's chapter and verse? And if you can tell me through chapter and verse, this is what I have to do, I'll do it. Otherwise, I'll go off and do my own thing. But that's not, that's not the voice of the gospel living. That's not one who actually is, is immersed in the gospel. But rather, our faces will be turned to God as we're growing godliness and say, what would God have me do so that I can live for Him and love Him more? That's, that's the conduct that we ought to be doing. Back to, chapter, back to verse 12. So he's to be an example in, 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 in speech and in conduct. And he also says you're, you're to be an example also in, in love. And so that also means that Timothy is to train himself in, in godly love. And that's for us too. You're to grow in your love for one another, for members of Melville Church. Uh, and what that means is you're going to care for one another, to be present for one another, to look out for one another. And then not only would you... Uh, care for fellow members and fellow people who attend Melville Church, but that's going to spill out then to a love for others as well. And yes, also to a love for your neighborhood, to a love for our city, a love for the world. Indeed, it is this love for all people which is going to get you to pray for them as Timothy had been instructed in chapter 2. Where we'd be eager that they may be saved. And come to a knowledge of the truth. And then also verse 12. You are to train for godliness with respect to your faith. Now this may respect, be with respect to your faith in God. That sure knowledge. And also the firm confidence. And really that sure knowledge is that thing which we're growing in. In faith in God. But also, also here it would also be your faithfulness towards him. And then finally. You are to train yourself in godly purity. It's a connection of course between purity and conduct. But what this shows you, we need to be pure in every way. Our motives must be pure. Our heart must be sincere. And godly purity must also mean bodily purity. God hasn't saved your souls and said you can do whatever you like with your body. But we are saved body and soul for Him. And that means you are to be men and women of integrity. And to practice godly discipline in what you think, in what you dream about, in what you look at, in what you say, and in what you do. And so you ought to be persistent in training yourself for godliness. 
But even as you train yourself, you're going to be confronted once and more with your own weakness, with the weakness of your, your own flesh, the, your inability to be truly godly. And this, in turn, must drive you to your knees in prayer, imploring that the Lord may once again grant you His grace in the Holy Spirit, and the Lord will give you His grace, and that He'll give you His Holy Spirit to comfort you, to convict you, and to guide you, and to train you. And the chief way that the Holy Spirit trains you to a life of increasing godliness is through His Word. And so take God's Word. Read it. Timothy must do this as a pastor of Ephesus. I must do this as, as pastor of Melville. And you must do this as members of Melville, as members of Christ. Read God's Word. Study it. Meditate on it. And most certainly come here to church and have it, hear it preached. It's in this way that our lives be saturated, not just with a reading God's Word, but that we might also seek to live in God's Word. So be nourished by His Word. Hold on to the doctrines, to the teachings of God's grace. Because that's what's required of us. That the church of God trains in godliness by taking hold of the true doctrine, the true gospel of salvation, Jesus Christ, and then living out of this in all things. And all God's children... All Christians must live and train themselves in this, in this way. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a child of God. You see, Christians don't just believe the gospel. and That's it. Christians are changed by the gospel. True Christians are godly. And so how is it with you? What's your diet like? What do you do for exercise? What spiritual food are you eating? How much, in fact, are you consuming? How are you doing with your spiritual exercises and your commitment to grow in true godliness? If you need any help, let me or let one of the oldest know. And if you see anybody else who might need a little help, and, and at the end of the day, we all do, well, try connecting with him or her. Go out for a coffee. It'll be decaf for me for this month. Urge one another to a life of godly living. Because, as 1 Timothy 4 verse 8 says, while bodily training may have some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And this saying, Paul goes on in verse 9, he says, this saying, it is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And therefore, believe it and live by it. Amen.